Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. Consumers waste up to a quarter of our food after we've bought it. And so when you think about that, when you think about a consumer walking out of the grocery store with four different grocery bags, it's like just dropping one of them and leaving all of that perfectly good food on the parking lot pavement. It's crazy. Drawdown isn't proposing, and, and, and I wouldn't propose that people need to convert to you know, strictly vegetarian or vegan diet. The most important place to start is you know, eating less meat. And as people are kind of exposed to that idea and exposed to you know, what really high-quality and nutritional plant-rich foods look like and taste like, then that'll start to move the needle a lot more. I'm very pleased today to welcome Drawdown Research Fellows Zach Aquardi and Amanda Hong to the podcast to discuss the impact of food demand on global warming. Amanda is Environmental Protection Specialist within US EPA Region 8, working to prevent waste and sustainably manage materials across all sectors and agency levels. She earned her Master of Public Policy degree from UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she applied economic and quantitative analytical skills to global energy and environmental issues. Zach works to improve public transportation policy and practice with Transit Centre, a foundation dedicated to urban mobility. He's a background in urban sustainability policy and has a Master of Science in Technology and Policy from MIT, where his research focused on the intersection of urban planning, climate change mitigation and international development. Well, thank you very much, Amanda and Zach, uh, for taking the time today to speak to the Drawdown podcast. And I'm very much looking forward to speaking to you about food, food demand, and uh, what you discovered in the research you did at Drawdown. And also uh, get a sense of the lay of the land and how you see things moving forward. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, can you tell me a little bit maybe by way of background, both of you, and how you became involved in Drawdown? Sure. I began with the Drawdown project um, quite a few years ago now. Chad Frischman, who I believe is the vice president, he was a grad school friend of mine and let me know about his new position and that they were looking for fellows. Chad happened to know that I worked on preventing food waste at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. They have an office there in San Francisco. So he strongly suggested that I apply for it. um, And I ended up getting the position, I think, just because of my background and happened to know a lot about the issue of food waste and its um, pervasiveness in our society and globally. And that's how I came on. Right, right. And for me, I saw a, a kind of general interest solicitation, I think over email um, about the project. I was intrigued. Uh, my background is in energy and, and climate policy. So the idea of a project to inventory the most powerful climate change solutions was really intriguing. Um, so I applied for the um, research fellow 
program and talked more to Chad uh, and the other folks at Drawdown uh, turned out to be a good fit. And um, uh, so I've been engaged with Drawdown for a few years now, uh, off and on. Great, great. So food, um, particular today, we're going to talk about food demand. Before you began this research, um, I mean, I, I know food waste is something that's been on minds of, I guess, environmentalists at least, and and, and uh, increasingly maybe in the, in the media as well. But when you started to explore this, was there good information out there on this question? What were some of the, the I guess, the, the kind of background kind of perspectives on this whole question of food? So there are quite a few reports out there um, that sort of begun to raise the issue of food waste to a level where more and more eyes were getting drawn to it. Um, One of the most exciting or, I guess, important reports was out of the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. This woman, Stana Gunders, had produced this report estimating that up to 40% of the food produced in the U.S. was wasted. And that's just a huge number. That's a lot closer than 50% to 50% than most of us um, would have suspected. And she, she just did broad research across the board from farm to fork, looking at all of the production and then just tracking all of the losses across every single supply chain and came up with that number. It's huge. At EPA, we've done a bit of research as well, looking at USDA numbers. As far as food losses, it, it looked at um, a more conservative estimate that about a third of all the food produced is wasted. But we know that in these high-income countries, largely that is due to the retailer and consumer levels. Consumers waste up to a quarter of our food after we've bought it. And so when you think about that, when you think about a consumer walking out of the grocery store with four different grocery bags, it, it's like just dropping one of them and leaving all of that perfectly good food on the parking lot pavement. It's crazy. But at, at the time, I think that this issue is just starting to be something that people looked at. It was not fully explored. I knew that it was a huge issue just based on the research that I had come across. But even I had no idea just how large of an issue this truly was. I see. And how about you, Zach? How much information was there about the environmental impact of meat-intensive diets prior to your research? I'd say, you know, the environmental benefits of eating less meat and less red meat in particular have been known for some time. And there's a good amount of research on the environmental and, and climate, specifically climate benefits of eating less meat. And I knew that there was a good amount of research on the topic because uh, while I was in college, I had done some work on specifically the life cycle emissions of the beef production system. So from that work, I knew how significant beef consumption specifically was in the U.S., where we eat approximately a quarter pound or uh, a quarter pound of beef every day or about a cheeseburger on average for every person. And so, you know, this problem was well understood, but in terms of the kind of global potential to reduce emissions in this sector, there had been pretty limited attempts to to model that in in the way that we have done through Drawdown's work. Right, right. So how did it feature? How did the food solutions 
feature in terms of the overall They rankings. feature very prominently. So the overall highest ranking solutions in drawdowns analysis, the most impactful is refrigerant management and then it's onshore wind turbines. And then food waste and plant-rich diet come in at third and fourth. So if you kind of group them together as these food demand solutions, they would be the most impactful solutions in, in the entire kind of portfolio. Um, and to put that in some other perspective, either food waste or plant-rich diet, the magnitude of the impact is bigger than the potential impact of both rooftop solar panels and utility scale, you know, large solar arrays. So the potential impact is is huge. Yes. So looking at food waste, how big an issue is this globally? And, you know, what are the main drivers of food waste? And how do they differ from the global south to the affluent west? Yeah. And when you think about production of food and how much goes into that, it starts to make sense why why this could be such a highly impactful solution. Think about from seeds to water to energy to land, fertilizer, all the labor put into it, all the transportation needs, packaging, all of that effort that goes into producing, packaging, transporting food from farm to retailer to, you know, storing it there properly in refrigerators and freezers to getting it to your home, all of the effort that we put into cooking it. And then think about that a third of all of that is wasted. Of course, that happens at various points of the supply chain, but when you are thinking about these high-income countries like the U.S. or parts of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, almost all of that comes at the consumer level. There's a lot that goes in um, or that ends up wasted at the retailer level as well. But as far as what we can do as individuals to ensure this isn't happening, it really starts with your own food storage habits and your planning for your food. Um, what's funny is that it's something like 75% of all Americans think that they don't waste food or they that they waste less food than the average person. So when you, when you think about the statistics, um, the majority of Americans think they waste less than the average American. So that's statistically impossible. Um, and most people are wasting far more food than they realize. Um, I would say that one of the large drivers behind why we end up wasting so much food, um, I think it's a bit of a factor of our society. There's so much, <laughs> we all are feeling so much pressure to be parents, to be partners, to be good workers, to ensure that we have an active life. There's so many pressures on our lives now and we are in need of food quickly sometimes. Maybe we were planning on having that leftover lasagna for dinner, but I ended up working late and I need something on my way home and that lasagna just gets pushed back further in the fridge and kind of forgotten about. So it's it's kind of just an increased awareness and a promise to yourself and to your food that you're going to utilize all of it. And then as far as the low-income countries, it's it's really not at all on the consumer end. Even on the retailer side, it's further up the supply chain. So when you think about the um, infrastructure needs and demands on the system when it comes to raising your animals or producing good plants for harvest, a lot of that gets wasted because of all the infrastructure issues. So just transporting that safely, there's lots of spills, 
there's rotting or spoils during storage or distribution because of a lack of technology to help ensure that that food stays good and wholesome until it can be delivered to people. And, you know, of course, in those lower income countries, hunger is very much still a real issue and a driver. That's why there is no there is no consumer waste at all. It's all upstream. Right, right. And I guess in, in, in the affluent uh, countries as well, what about the price of food? Price uh, presumably uh, has been falling uh, pretty significantly as a uh, proportion of people's take-home uh, income and things. And I guess it, it feels like it's uh, something that they can, you know, uh, make do with if, 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 if they need to buy some other food, if they, you know, if, they, if the food goes off or if they, it, it's not such a big issue. That's exactly right. It, it doesn't it doesn't demand your attention as much. You know, it's it's funny because in this country we seem to care a lot about gasoline prices. People drive around a lot looking for the cheapest gasoline, even if it's for a few cents. But people don't seem to care as much about the food prices. Perhaps that's because when it's all added up together, it doesn't make that much of a difference um, whether you're spending a dollar here or there. But, you know, we have seen studies that have shown that if a family of four can reduce their waste by just 25% over a year, they can save up to $1,500. So it's not negligible. There's significant savings to be had here. But we've also seen studies that show that the number one driver behind people not wasting their food when they start to begin to pay attention to it is not actually the economics of it. It's just this waste aversion feeling. I think as people, we have very strong connection to our food as we should. I mean, it is our sustenance. We need it to survive. And people don't generally like to waste it. Even if we do end up forgetting about those strawberries in the back of the refrigerator, when you pull them out, you feel a sense of loss more than just the money that you invested in those strawberries. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what about the regulations in terms of, you know, sell-by dates? My kids give me a hard time about this. <laughs> um, sometimes it, it's just not clear and you, you do get a sense that actually this food would be okay for, you know, a longer period of time. What is the role there in terms of uh, regulations? I mean, it, it, it differs in different countries, I'm sure. But in terms of helping awareness and enabling people maybe to, to make their food go a little bit further. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that is is a big issue and a driver that creates more food waste as well. People do pay a lot of attention to those dates and there's a lot of confusion because they do range from sell by to best by to um, best before and nobody really knows what that means. Most people seem to interpret that to mean that it expires on that date. Even though for most producers and manufacturers of that food, they are trying to indicate to their retailers that you should really try to sell this before this date. And then it's, of course, good for a longer period of time after that in the consumer's household. But that's just an indicator of the peak freshness, often, oftentimes, of the whatever dish or food it is. And so that, that does lead to a lot of confusion, people throwing it out when it reaches its peak freshness instead of when it actually is bad. And so there's some ongoing movement behind educating consumers, just trying to get the word out that those dates are, um, they're misleading and that consumers shouldn't pay much attention to that. But there is sort of an identified solution that we need to switch that up on the regulation side or just by partnering with manufacturers voluntarily who can either hide those dates since they are 
intended to just communicate with the retailers and consumers aren't necessarily supposed to see those dates at all. So if there's some way they can hide those codes um, or those dates within the barcode, for instance, or some other way of communicating that to the retailer, I think there's efforts there underway as well as efforts underway to try to change the regulatory side of things and or it just be more clear and uniform that this is a date that indicates peak freshness rather than expiration. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And generally, awareness is increasing here. How far have we got to go yet? I mean, uh, how are things changing here? Well, I think one of the exciting results of this research is to show people how incredibly impactful these decisions are. So Zach was talking about that the reduced food waste and as well as the plant-rich diet are combined the most impactful thing that you can do. And what really excites me about that is that those are both at the individual level of agency. We don't need a regulator to come in and, and tell us how we can stop wasting food or how we can eat less meat. Those are things that we can all individually do right now and have a huge impact. And I, that's really exciting because I think if that's more of the message, people will begin to be even more motivated to reduce waste. Because like I said, people already don't like to waste food. They're waste averse in many ways, just naturally. So if we can illustrate to people what a big deal that is and how it all adds up to be this huge impact on our planet, on our resources, on the climate, then I think that people will start to feel even more motivated to ensure that they're not wasting food because it, it becomes a lifestyle change that adds to this greater good rather than just their own stomachs or wallet. I see. Clearly, the question of food waste in the global south differs considerably from that in more affluent countries. Can you talk about what's happening in the global south to tackle food waste? Sure. So I think that, like you said, um, and I, di I did mention that it's really exciting that it's an individual agency level that we can reduce food waste. But you're right, in these developing countries, there is no food for them to waste at the consumer level. Um, and so those solutions are needed further up the supply chain, ensuring that farmers have proper um, resources to produce their crops in the first place. I'm very familiar with Mali in West Africa. Um, I served as a Peace Corps volunteer there, and so I'm very, very intimately familiar with all of the challenges of growing food in a, an arid um, desertification type of environment due to climate change, largely, in my, in my opinion. They have less and less water every year to grow this food. So ensuring that farmers have the resources needed to grow healthy crops and be successful and get a good harvest, and then ensuring that infrastructure is in place to enable that food to get out to people and safely store it, transport it. All of that is really needed. And I think there's a lot of interest in outside groups and aid groups coming into these countries and trying to help develop that infrastructure. And I think one needed piece is still at the government level. Some of these governments need to ensure that the policies in place there are enabling food security more than um, tampering it. Yes, yes. Very interesting. How does um, the plant-based diet compare? Are, are there significant differences, Zach, in terms of the, the level, the scale? You mentioned uh, one's number three and one's number four. Are, are they broadly similar? 
Um, they they are similar. So um, reducing food waste is estimated to avoid 70 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. And plant-rich diet comes in just under that at 66. So they're pretty comparable in, in scale, but food waste is a little bit bigger in the drydown model. Right, right. And I guess in the same way that there's a difference between uh, the developing countries and the more affluent countries, some significantly different underlying factors, when it comes to the plant-rich diet, this seems to be one of the megatrends, I guess they call them, is, you know, as countries become more developed, they move towards a more meat-rich diet. Can you talk a little bit about some, maybe some of the differences between different parts of the world in terms of attitudes and diet behavior? Sure. Well, as Amanda described um, you know, the most pressing need in the food system in um, in developing countries is typically to make sure that people that people have enough. And so you see as as incomes rise, people tend to eat more, which is good. And they also tend to eat more meat, which is um, not good for the climate, but but again, probably good in terms of meeting nutritional needs. In the drawdown analysis, we assume that that is going to continue, that people are going to be eating more, increasingly having their nutritional needs met, and that they will, over time, eat more meat than they currently are. And for that reason, the sort of burden of action is more squarely on people in higher wealth countries um, where we're starting from right now a much less sustainable place and a place where while there are pervasive and, and really substantial hunger issues even in the US there are a lot of people who are you know living a lifestyle of abundance um, and who are able to um, when it comes to food and so you know those people have the biggest opportunity to reduce meat consumption, to shift towards um, a more plant-rich diet, and to have a really, really big impact from their food choices. In the model, we also do assume that people in the developing world will change behavior relative to what they otherwise would have done. So in other words, while they might be eating more meat, they might be eating a smaller increment of meat than they otherwise would have and getting you know the same sort of protein and other nutritional value from plant-based sources. Um, so there is an opportunity for action globally in terms of shifting preferences, but the biggest opportunity for impact is here in the in the higher income, higher wealth world. Right, right. And I guess, as you say, underlying this is there's a tension, isn't there, between those parts of the world and those communities that haven't access to enough food. They don't quite literally have enough food. And then this question of food preferences. And I guess that is uh, challenging in some respects to try and you know, communicate this message because there's different audiences and there's, you know, th this is still a major challenge around the world. Yeah, you know, the, one of the things that I think this analysis highlights is that that tension isn't as big as um, as we would have expected, and and again, that's because we can see that even assuming that people's livelihoods improve and that they're able to eat more and that they are able to have more choices about the food that they eat, that we can still have a tremendous impact um, while we are you know lifting up people who are living in food scarcity right now. 
So it doesn't have to be a trade-off. Uh, it doesn't have to be a trade-off between people being able to eat and and us being able to meet our climate goals. Um, you know, that wouldn't be an acceptable trade-off to make. But at the same time, you know, there is a need for everyone across the wealth spectrum to understand the climate impacts of their dietary choices and how big uh, an impact that has on, on greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, yes. What are the trends here? Are, are Americans eating less meat? It's, uh, it seems like it's a difficult one to sell. <laughs> it's a really difficult one to sell. And, you know, I'd back up for a moment to sort of describe that a few different ways in which we can reduce the greenhouse gas emissions impact of our diet. Eating less red meat in particular and less and fewer animal products in general is, you know, one of I'd say three different categories of of actions that individuals can take. And it is probably the biggest one um, is is just shifting the choices of which types of food you eat towards towards a plant-rich diet. Um, the second is just eating less food. So particularly in, again, high-income and high-wealth countries, I think we have a bias towards eating more than we actually need to. And so just choosing to eat less, eat as much as you need and, and not much more than that also has a really, really big impact. And then finally, there's a choice of sort of... Uh, if you've already decided you're going to have a salad, for example, where do you get the ingredients for that specific salad? So are you getting lettuce that was shipped in from across the country or from internationally? Um, or are you buying lettuce from, from a local farm? And obviously, you can't always buy local food for everything that you want to eat. Um, but making some choices where you're choosing local products also has um, has a small impact, um, but a but a meaningful one when we're talking about a, a global scale. So you have sort of these three different ways to reduce impact: eating less, eating more plants, and then eating local products. And the the impacts of these the impacts of these changes are also far-reaching. Um, it's not just that eating less meat enables you know fewer greenhouse gas emissions, but the Impacts of this choice extend to kind of changing land use, meaning that, you know, as we're producing less meat, we're able to use a considerable amount of land to either avoid deforestation that would be needed to create more more livestock um, or also to, to repurpose land for other uses that could also have climate benefits like biochar or, or developing bioplastics. Um, in terms of the trends, to go back to your original question, in, in terms of the trends um, in the U.S., there, there isn't a big change happening right now. People, uh, and um, Americans specifically, are still eating a lot of meat and, and a lot of red meat in particular. The U.S. is one of the highest um, has one of the highest red meat consumption rates in in the world, and it is really you know it's similar to food waste um, in the U.S. It is really something that requires a lot of education efforts. Um, getting people to change their behavior requires an understanding of why they should, what the benefits are to them as individuals. In this case, you know. Um, 
having a healthier lifestyle and, and, you know, not necessarily having to compromise on, you know, quality of life and, and the quality of food and nutrition that you're, that you're getting. And so that's going to be a long-term project, definitely, to, to kind of make this into a culturally pervasive and, and acceptable practice. Yes, yes. I mean, you you mentioned uh, red meat, and and I've seen some studies that su- suggest that you know beef is five, ten times more damaging to the environment than than even other uh, meat. Uh, presumably, just moving from you know red meat to you know chicken or turkey to fowl in that sense could in itself have a significant impact. That, that's absolutely right. So even just shifting from beef to chicken or or pork has has a pretty big environmental benefit and so you know that's one of the reasons that in in the analysis that we did we we capped the amount of red meat that any you know individual can can consume on average as we move forward in time and do you have any uh, hope for these kind of bio meats, these alternatives that seem to be growing in uh, interest and uh, seems to be a lot of investment going into these companies? And I know some, uh, Bill Gates, some of these billionaire philanthropists are, are supporting these projects in, in a big way. H- how important are they? Well, they, they could be very important. I actually had an opportunity just a few weeks ago to try two of those products for the first time um, beyond meat and the impossible burger and they are remarkable the you know the 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 science and the technology behind those you know non-meat meats um, if you will um, is pretty impressive it's come a long way and uh, you know i i can't comment really on their their climate benefits because i i haven't seen studies on on what what the climate impacts of those alternative meat products are, but if they are less carbon intensive than beef, which um, is a pretty low bar, then they could play a really big role in, in helping people make low carbon choices. Right, right. And uh, something which is maybe more for the, the food supply side of things, but have you come across uh, what do you think of the idea of peak farmland and the idea that there's, you know, uh, much more effective, efficient um, farming now? I, I know there's some analysts that, that argue that we're there or thereabouts, certainly in America in terms of peak farmland and, uh, the, you know, the productivity of farming is in- increasing substantially. And if, you know, if, if the average went to the, the best performance across you know the the food supply chain that that this would be very significant impact um yeah i think there i think there are a lot of opportunities for kind of production efficiency improvements but you know going back to to the conversation sort of about livestock there's sort of a, a limited efficiency that you can get from land that is used specifically to to raise livestock relative to land that is used to grow plants um you know beef production is one of the most land intensive processes that humanity has invented and it's a driver of deforestation uh, in countries around the world um, and so, on the one hand, you have improved agricultural efficiencies, which help us better meet food needs and reduce sort of the pace at which we need to expand agricultural capacities. And, and perhaps that means that we have reached, at least in some places, at, you know, peak farmland, as you put it. 
Um, but there's also this broader shift that needs to happen, and that's what these changing dietary preferences will enable, which is just using less land for livestock production, um, which has had pretty devastating environmental consequences. And unless we curb that increase in red meat consumption in particular, but also meat consumption in general, we will have a whole new slew of, of environmental problems on our on our hands, um, including but but not limited to climate. So I guess particularly in the, the developed world, but throughout the world, there's an industrialization of food production and dramatic change, really, I guess, even since the beginning of the 20th century in the number of people who worked in farms and, and you know, lived in rural communities. And we've seen tremendous industrialization of agriculture generally. What impact has that had on some of these problems? Well, I'd say to date, there are some senses in which it has exacerbated these problems because you have, you know, big companies who are motivated by profit and who have been operating, uh, whose business models have evolved, I think, before there was really a, a broad understanding of, of how big the climate impact of these production systems might be. And so, you know, that remains a big challenge. But it also creates, I think, an opportunity, which is that when you have a, a sort of shorter list of, of actors to deal with, of stakeholders, a few of these really, really big agricultural corporations or conglomerates, um, that creates a kind of more concentrated opportunity for action and potentially um, for working together, but also potentially for actual regulation. And, you know, having that kind of shorter list of agricultural producers could make it easier to implement, you know, more sweeping changes, but it'll require some boldness and some bravery on the part of those companies um, on, and or on the, the government regulation side. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything that Zach said and also just say that I think, as he kind of touched on earlier, that industrialization has led to more disconnect between the average um, American say, and I think that would apply probably fairly um, regularly or consistently across the globe, especially in the high income countries, it creates a more disconnect between us and our, and our food and where it comes from, which leads to more exacerbated problems as far as how much food we're wasting. Um, when you don't see what all is going into it, and it's as, as simple as just going into the grocery store and having this overwhelming supply of things to choose from for remarkably low prices considering all of the resources and energy that goes into getting that food to the store in the first place it definitely can lead to more waste in that sense and so i think one of the really interesting solutions to the this issue going forward might just be this growing trend that i've seen lately in creating garden um, projects for for school age children especially because you know, I have kids now and it, it's hard to imagine that they're growing up in a world where they never actually have to see the production of food to survive. They can completely be removed from that and grow up happily. But they are, it, as schools are encouraging their students more and more to get out into the onto the school grounds, use compost from their own kitchens and create their own vegetable gardens, grow their own produce. Um, and even in the in things like 4-H clubs, they can raise their own animals as well to really connect more to that food. I think that's a really great model for trying to reduce some of this food waste and help people to more tangibly connect to their food and what that means to have that 
tomato or that leaf of um, lettuce in your hand. Yes, yes. This, the, I guess, what some people call decentralized food production, but that idea that you know, more distributed, um, less centralized. Is this a trend? I think it's a it's a trend, just like you know the the work around trying to change the labels on foods. It's a trend in that sense. So there's decentralization work happening across all these different sectors. That's happening in the energy sector as well. So I think that we're we're seeing that more and more crop up, and um, part you know part in the pun, it is cropping up <laughs> across <laughs> the world. Um, and I think that's a really exciting solution. Right, right. Now, we, we talked about the fact that, again and again, this is a question in most cases of individual agency. Um, what are the mo- most important actors also creating momentum here in terms of government regulation, maybe NGOs, maybe food corporations themselves? I mean, if they're selling food that's going off, well, you know, how incentivized are they really? They've got a, a single agenda, which is, you know, uh, primarily to increase their sales and profits and, and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about some of those factors that will help create momentum? Sure. So um, I think government is increasingly recognizing that there is a role to play in terms of changing behavior, even if it isn't a regulatory role per se. So, for example, the city of Portland, Oregon, cited Drawdown's plant-rich diet research in its official city climate plan. And, you know, the city of Portland has no regulatory authority to limit what kind of food people buy or consume. And I don't think that's a role that any city should have or or wants to have. But the city of Portland is one of many cities who are recognizing that their climate impacts um, are tied to consumption patterns. And so they have set a goal for reducing the carbon impact of their residents' diets, and they'll do that through through education campaigns and, uh, and, and similar actions that sort of raise the profile of this issue, perhaps through partnerships with businesses and, you know, could even be restaurants, that sort of thing. But th- that's something that I think is, is increasingly recognized, not just at the, the city level, but at other levels of government as well. And then there's, I think, a lot to be said for the role of kind of creating more transparency in the climate impacts of food. You know, there have been some efforts, which I think have picked up more steam in Europe than in the U.S., to actually label label goods with like a carbon emissions impact. Uh, again, that's a relatively been at a relatively small scale to date, but it's something can just help people understand what the impacts of their behavior are and then their their financial incentives as well so you know if the price of beef for example actually included the carbon impact of that beef production that could go a long way to shifting behavior although if that's going to happen it's probably a ways off but that might be what it takes to um, in terms of the government to, to play a, a bigger role. In the meantime, education, I think, is the big, the big opportunity. Right, right. Are you both optimistic in terms of the pace of change, in terms of the levels of increasing awareness? Yes. <laughs> um, what do we say in, in Drawdown? I think the phrase we like to use is that this is optimistically plausible, there are current um, trends in the making, different um, educational campaigns, 
more awareness is growing around the issue of food waste. And so I think that this idea that we could reduce food waste, cut it in half by 2050 is actually, it's, I do feel optimistic about it. I think it, it is possible and that there are exciting movements out there that will help us get to that point. Yeah. And I agree. Uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of reason for optimism on the plant-rich diet side as well. You know, on the one hand, people like eating meat and there's they feel often culturally that they need to. And I think the other big challenge is that the sort of food supply chains are, are invisible. I think that's a big challenge for food waste as well, that people are kind of increasingly distant from the sources of food that they rely on. But on the other hand, you know, I think there's a lot of reason to have faith in people making behavioral changes as they come to understand these issues more. And it's the sort of thing that, that people really just need to be exposed to. There are a lot of people for whom, you know, meeting a vegetarian or a vegan would be kind of like meeting an alien. They wouldn't know, you know, how to treat you or, or even what exactly it means to make those choices. And at the end of the day, it also, you know, Drawdown isn't proposing and, and, and I wouldn't propose that people need to convert to, you know, strictly vegetarian or vegan diet. The most important place to start is, you know, eating less meat. And as people are kind of exposed to that idea and exposed to, you know, what really high quality and nutritional plant rich foods look like and taste like, um, then, you know, that that'll start to move the needle a lot more. Right, right. And looking forward then in terms of the continuing work at Drawdown, are you involved in, in uh, any further research around these questions? Are there, is there going to be some more output um, addressing either of these or indeed more generally the food demand side of things? Well, Project Drawdown is actively in conversations with different research partners who will be part of growing the, the kind of coalition of researchers, practitioners, policymakers, that kind of comprise the the drawdown co coalition. So they're working on building building more partnerships to further develop research and fill some of the gaps that we've identified, not just in the food systems but more broadly. And so so yeah, we'll we'll expect that there will be more updates to the work that Amanda and I have done, um, and which others have now contributed to, and that we'll continue to get a better and better picture of not just what's going on, but, you know, how, how we can really take con concrete steps um, to do something about it. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your insights and the, the work that you've done on this uh, tremendously important question. And I wish you the very best with your ongoing work. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.